0: I run into this very paradoxical thing of like you know i wouldn't wish this upon anyone and yet i wish people had the view you know the view of it you know just temporarily hi
1: i'm brilliant your host for this show i know that i'm incredibly blessed as the son of self-made billionaires i've seen the high price some people pay for success and I've learned that money really can't buy happiness, but I've also had the good fortune to learn directly from many of the world's leading teachers. If you are ready to be, do, have, and give more, this podcast is for you. Today, my guest is Adam Stern, MD. Adam is author of Committed, Dispatches from a Psychiatrist in Training. It's a memoir that Adam wrote about his time learning to become a psychiatrist which involved overcoming imposter syndrome and learning the value of human connection. Adam is well studied in psychology, medicine, psychiatry, clinical neurosciences, all kinds of smart, academic, scientific stuff, but he's a very approachable human being. He's currently an assistant professor of psychiatry at Harvard and he has won several awards for psychiatry, for writing and excellence in medical education, and he's also published more than two dozen scholarly publications. In this interview, we talk about a lot of things dealing with doubts after we've made a choice that's important to us, after we've committed to a certain path in life, how to deal with it when it arises, which it almost inevitably will. We talk about the difference between being empathic and being empathetic, how those things differ and how we can become more empathic. We talk about especially if you're in any of the healing modalities, like if you work with people, helping them to become more complete, better versions of themselves, I think you'll be interested in this interview. We talk about our individuality, knowing what we want, breaking through to the next level for us and helping others do the same thing. We also talk about uh, Adam's creative process. He's a cartoonist, in addition to being a writer, And following your passion, doing what you love for yourself and the serendipity that often happens because of that. I think Adam's story is is pretty cool in that regard. You can learn more about Adam at his website, adamsternmd.com. You can follow him on Twitter at Adam Philip Stern. That's Philip with one L. With that, I hope you enjoy this conversation with my new friend, Dr. Adam Stern. Adam, welcome to the School for Good Living. Thank you so much for having me. And I just, I don't want to go much further by, before I acknowledge that I could have started that with Dr. Stern, but before we began rolling, we talked about uh, the fact it's okay for me to call you Adam in this, Uh, but will you tell me please,
0: what is life about? I think life is about a balance between the present moment and your ideas about the future. Uh, along with your ideas about the past. And so that, to me, is what life is all about. And I can certainly expand on that if you want. Yes. Yeah, I do want to dig into that. Um, and I want to talk
1: about that through the, the context of your book, Committed, Dispatches from a Psychiatrist in Training, which, of course, you're through your training now and you're practicing. But I want to actually begin by talking about the fact that you come from a family of medical practitioners, right? And your dad was a doctor, but your Mm -hmm. dad actually discouraged you from Mm -hmm. becoming a doctor. Will you talk about that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, my brother and I grew up admiring our, our father. Um, he is a cardiologist still practicing. He's a wonderful doctor. He cares about his patients. His patients seem to care about him and, and, um, the idea that you could do good in the world and that society would provide you with a comfortable lifestyle based on that, the idea that you could help people over decades uh, navigate their health and well being, all of those things were, were things that we just naturally observed and that drew my brother and me to the field of medicine. Um, all while, over the first 20 years of our lives, our father would sort of um, sometimes talk about medicine as. Being a challenging field, a, a field where it's not easy to do the job um, without feeling the weight of the job, without feeling burnout from the administrative and, and uh, logistical tasks of the job. And, and um, when we were growing up in a particular era, um, the, there was an emergent, there was a real transition within medicine uh, where there was the emergence of. Uh, things like uh, health maintenance organizations, HMOs uh, there were the field was changing from the era that my father trained in, and so I think that that transition might have also led to a certain degree of um, uh, feeling discouraged about his kids potentially following in his footsteps. But as most kids do, uh, we we didn't listen to our dad, and we both went into medicine anyway. Now, I know that mental health or mental
1: illness has a stigma. Many people they don't understand it. They don't know how to deal with it in themselves or someone they love. Uh, and it's a, it's a field that is not as well understood. Even psych, you know, psychiatry is a field that's not as well understood in some ways where it's not as mechanical uh, as other aspects of medicine. Right. But what is it about this that attracted you? Your dad was a cardiologist. Your brother didn't go into psychiatry. Why did you follow this path?
0: Right, you're absolutely right. I, I, uh, I—they've never said this to me, but I do consider myself almost like a black sheep of the family in that I uh, went into this field that has so much stigma around it, and it's so far from cardiology. Um, but all of that being said, uh, what drew me to it was that I effectively, at some point, had to look back at my experience and decide what were the parts of my training in medical school, in my, even my undergraduate education, what were the things that really inspired my brain, my mind, uh, my heart, for lack of a better word, uh, what made me excited, what made me motivated to do better, and it was always the didactic, the, the academic course, the clinical rotation that had to do with brain and behavior, uh, the mind, emotions. Uh, And part of that is that everybody in psychiatry, uh, patients, psychiatrists, everybody that you might come across in that field, um, there's nothing really more important than what is important to them, especially when we're referring to patients, what their values are, what do they hope to get out of the encounter or the therapeutic alliance, the relationship, what's the the core of who they are. That's the most important thing in psychiatry, even, even for someone who might just be prescribing medications or something else. And so that idea is what really, I think, drew me to the field in a way that, uh, other fields I found really fascinating. Um, but it was, if, you know, if you want to, um, repair a bone in surgery uh you could probably do that for the most part without ever getting to know um you know the patient's life story you know and to me the life story is the most fascinating part of it all Yeah, absolutely I, we're
1: endlessly fascinating aren't we <laughs> in some <laughs> ways totally mysterious and in other ways maybe not that complicated at all but it's a paradox being human i think so something you talk about in the book that I was intrigued by is that many people who like, it's no secret that many people who go into psychiatry are a bit
0: eccentric. Why is that? Yeah. So I think that's a good question. Something that a lot of people pondered. I don't have a a real proper answer of like, well, this is clearly why. Uh, But to some degree, I think that people who would uh, connect with that statement you you just made about uh, the human uh, condition being complicated and paradoxical in some ways. Those of us who have a, a certain kind of brain for science and go into medicine, um, but still wonder, excuse me, wonder and marvel at the human condition and and how our existence in the world is not summarized by the four chamber pump in our chest and, you know, the, the filtration system and our kidneys that are, are uh, cleaning our blood and, and, and creating urine and that kind of thing um, that are more fascinated with what makes us uh, the people that we are. I think it sort of draws a certain kind of person. Um, it also draws hopefully someone that is, you um, by nature predisposed to be uh, empathic i think people who go into psychiatry who are not empathic do a really poor job probably i think empathy is is at the core of practicing psychiatry and it probably draws a certain segment of people who have dealt with their own mental health issues whether diagnosed or or subclinical sub you know and, and at a level where it's just always something's always uh, gnawed at them or confused them or made them think more within their own inner worlds. And uh I think that one of you know Freud's most advanced, most mature defense mechanisms is intellectualization. So a lot of us will study things that make us uneasy. And going into psychiatry for someone who's had that challenge, I think is there's no better example than that.
1: Yeah, no doubt. You know, something that you talk about in the book too that I thought was really interesting is this you make this commitment to follow this course of study and a professional path and so forth. And more than once <laughs> along the way, you found yourself questioning your choice and maybe your commitment. Of course, as we know now, you you stuck with it, you got through and you're still in in some ways now that you're practicing, but something that was very challenging and I I do want to know who you wrote the book for, but I also want to, I'm imagining that many people who are curious about if this is the path for them would be attracted to your book. And I, so let me, before we get to who you wrote it for, will you just tell me a bit about that, maybe those doubts that you had and what it was that allowed you to persist in this, in this course, despite the doubts.
0: Yeah. So I, I talk a bit of in the book and and a lot outside of the book about this phenomenon of imposter syndrome, feeling like you don't belong. And I think that's a somewhat ubiquitous phenomenon, but it's also um, really uh, the field of medicine and medical training in particular is primed for it. It self-selects a certain kind of person who's self-motivated. You're surrounded by very high achieving people who outwardly seem like they're doing fine. And you don't have access to all their doubts and self-doubts and things that they wish they could do better and and that number of hours that they're spending just to achieve the basic level of of functioning within medicine. Um, So all of that leads to a very, very uh, widespread, uh, really, um, um, I would almost call it like a a ubiquitous experience within medicine that at certain points you're going to feel like you're not up to the task. Um, I worry more about some trainees now that I'm in more of a teaching role. uh, I worry about trainees if they don't worry that they, you know, if they feel like they know everything, Yeah, that's not as good as a trainee who's, uh, feels like maybe they're in a little bit over their head and, and they can ask for help when they need it. So, but you're, you're right throughout my own training, I can think of so many examples from uh, applying to medical school to getting in and starting medical school and arriving and realizing this is going to be much different, much, much harder and, and in a very different way than I was expecting. And then getting into residency, you've got your MD, but then you realize you don't actually know how to do the job that you're now tasked with doing. You have to learn that job on the fly. And so all of those were opportunities to feel that way.
1: You know, I haven't been through something like that exactly where you reach a point and you think, okay, I'm arrived. I've arrived. I've got the degree. You know, other people acknowledge me, but I still don't necessarily feel fully confident or capable. But what were there certain? Maybe there was a certain type of uh, situation or a specific instance where something came up that maybe confirmed for you that doubt. I know you talk about working with a couple of patients that had anorexia that was particularly challenging. But will you talk about maybe a, a specific time that really challenged your, your confidence or your, maybe even your commitment?
0: Yeah. So I can think of a couple uh, you know, right off the bat um, in terms of some are in the book and some are not. But one that I don't believe is in the book was a moment in the first year of medical school where I was after the first few maybe months of the semester or the year, I was on pace to fail a class called histology, which is the study of slides under a microscope, basically like human tissue, the various organ systems, what they look like in different stains under a microscope. And that's a very fundamental thing. It obviously has almost nothing. I mean, really almost nothing to do with what I do now as a, as a physician, as a psychiatrist, but um, I was, it was not connecting with me. And I just remember, you know, on on the verge of tears talking, calling my mother uh, this is at age, you know, 24 years old, 25 years old and calling my mother and saying like, I don't know if I can do this, you know, and, you know, with persistence and with sort of reevaluating how I go about my studies and that kind of thing, eventually you start to gain some momentum and realize, okay, if I, approach it this way, I'm able to do it. I'm not worse off than anybody else here with enough hard work and uh, encouragement and mentorship about the best way to do it. I can achieve this thing. And so that was a lesson and I did, you know, and I did fine. Uh, Obviously I didn't go into pathology where this kind of study is like uh, of of paramount importance, but um, you know, that idea that if I just figure out the right way to learn this i'm as good as anyone else here at putting in the hours and the effort to do it then i can do that Uh, that idea carried me forward for years even in residency you know in the book we we i talk about um a number of different patient encounters a lot of them happening overnight where it's really a bare bones uh crew it's like one or two residents taking care of the psychiatric needs of the entire medical center and um those moments where you feel like, Oh, I'm in over my head because this patient is experiencing mania. This patient is experiencing uh, suicidal thoughts or hearing voices or paranoid. I don't know how to, no one ever trained me in how to do this particular task of uh, calming someone down when they're upset about X, Y, or Z, you know, that kind of feeling of being overwhelmed. Uh, If you even go into those micro experiences, those momentary experiences of, okay, I will just keep going forward with my uh most earnest self trying the best I can, asking for help when I need it. Those are all very powerful tools to get through something and and once you've gotten through it, that's another arrow in your uh, you know, in your arsenal. That's something else that you can use in the future to remember uh, you know, to get better and better every time you go out and do the job.
1: Yeah. One of the things I love about that answer is that it's just so it's so honest. Like it seems so simple. You were earnestly doing the best you could. You were asking for help, but in some ways, right? Like you just talked about a defense mechanism is intellectualization sometimes at least. Right. But I'm curious, how do you, how do I phrase this question? How did you balance your training, which is very intellectual, which is academic, which is theoretical. It's kind of divorced from a specific time and place and person with your own intuition? How did you, and I realize all of us have to kind of find and feel our way through our lives, but can you talk about how you reconciled, how you knew when it was time to rely on what you had learned in a classroom or a textbook or a lecture or whatever, and and what your own inner sense was telling you?
0: Yeah. So that's a really interesting question because there are there are all kinds of different angles that I can think about it from, but one of them is you know, in psychiatry, there are all these hangups about, um, they're both, they're both sort of societal impressions of what a psychiatrist is and also actual training about how to react and what to do and what not to do. So, you know, there's a, a very small scene in the book where it might actually come up a couple times in the book where I feel like the human empathic response would be to put a hand on a patient's shoulder to make a human connection, you know, like, um, and, in our training, it was sort of like, well, you never really want to physically contact the patient unless it's for a medical reason, you know, and it just felt so alien and fed into all of those concerns that people have about psychiatrists being disconnected, aloof, cerebral, all those things that we think about all the sort of um, stigma around psychiatry. Um, And so I think that, that there's at least one, maybe two moments in the book where I'm able to, to lean into intuition more and and the formality of training a little bit less for what I think was the patient's benefit. Um, and I think that comes with experience. So when you're first in a brand new situation, you're going to be much more reliant on the instructions that are handed to you. One of the things that now that I'm you know about eight years out from the end of the book, eight, eight years out from training, um, one of the things that I've gotten much uh, better about is realizing that the rules are there to be mastered and then sometimes disregarded when you when you think it's for the best interest of the patient. Some rules are not. Some rules are hard and fast, but some like is it ever okay to put a hand on the patient's shoulder with their permission? Uh, that kind of thing. In, in if the moment is uh, right, you can you can bend that rule.
1: Yeah, you know, I'm just thinking of a parallel from my life, which is basketball, <laughs> where you know. Uh, somebody just starting out is taught never leave your feet for a pass but then you watch the superstars they do that all the time <laughs> you know right. it's like you're saying you, you master the rules and then you learn when it's okay to break them or when it's maybe necessary or important
0: right and, and just just like those nba stars you know when you're doing uh, something at a at what you hope is a high level for me, I'm not, I, the last thing I want to do is compare myself to an NBA star, but when I'm in with a patient, no, you know, there's no administration, there's no audience watching in, you're just trying to do the best thing for the patient, right? If yeah. you, if that's your compass, you know, so if an NBA players, it wants to perform at the top of their ability, you know, they, they might remember that they're not supposed to leave their feet for a pass, but if in that moment they think, I've been trained for this, this moment, I know it's the moment to, to try to intercept that pass or what have you, you know, then, then that's the time to, uh, to, to break that rule. And I feel like that is your, I think that analogy actually holds pretty well in, in any kind of uh, performative thing where you're on your own and you're trying to figure it out in real time. Yeah,
1: no doubt. Well, thanks for that. So let me ask you, who did you write this book for? And how do you hope they receive it. What do you hope it does for them or that their life is different because they,
0: they picked it up and read it? There's the truth and then there's the other truth in this answer. The first truth is I wanted everyone to read this book. You know, I wrote this book for a, a wide audience. I wanted it to be a you know like a big hit that that people read at book clubs and you know anybody could read it. I wrote it my natural writing style is colloquial and, and down to earth and people can Uh, read the book pretty quickly and easily without having to look up too many words or anything like that. It's not dense. It's the opposite of dense. So that was my goal was to write the book in a way that was really accessible to a, a big audience. But now that the book is written, uh, I can appreciate the fact that there is a built-in audience for anyone that's interested in psychology, young people that are thinking about going into some corner of the field of mental health care and there's a that's an enormous field uh, with all kind you know psychiatry is just one tiny little component of this overall apparatus. but anyone interested in, the care of other people, starting from the person, you know, so medical professionals, psychological professionals, uh, anybody within the broader field of mental health care, even within the the field of academia, where you, you know, there's a lot about the culture of, you know, sort of training and feeling lost in this book. Earlier in our conversation, you mentioned empathy. You meant you use the word empathy. How can we become more empathic? Wow. That's a great question because I do think that most of us are born with a certain tendency toward empathy. Um, Some of us, you know, I'll just tell the very quick anecdote that as I was reading, excuse me, as I was writing this book, I was finding myself using the word empathic that the psychiatrists are supposed to be empathic. And then I read someone else's book where they were using the word empathetic. And I said, what's the difference between these two words? This was like, I was like, I know that empathetic is a real word. I used to use that word all the time. How come in psychiatry I'm only using this word empathic? And when I, when I dug deep into that topic, which sadly went down a little bit of a rabbit hole, I learned that empathic is referring to the person being an empath, the person being um, sort of drawn to taking other people's perspectives. Whereas being empathetic is something you can put on and put and take off. You know, I can put on an empathetic tone and then the next sentence, I can take it off and not use that tone. But being empathic is a state of being to me. And so that's why in the book we in psychiatry in general, we talk about people being empathic. Can you cultivate it? I think to a degree you can. And I think some of that comes in the long term. you know, I think it helps if you're Raised by empathic people, I think it helps if if you're taught, you know that that the values that in our family we hold dear are X, Y, and Z. Caring for other people is important. Those kinds of things are useful at a at a training level, you know, from youth. But if you're an adult and you want to become more empathic, which I think is is mostly your question, I think it comes from uh, practice. Uh, I think it comes from making conscious choices to go out of your way to do that, making a habit of that. And then over time, I think people will find that they're more able to do it naturally without even thinking about it.
1: Thank you for that. That is an interesting distinction between empathic, empathic and empathetic. And I like what you're saying about being empathic is a way of being. And it's something that we could probably cultivate, but maybe only to a point. I mean, just like we all have a height, (laughs) right? We all have physical attributes. It makes sense that we all have kind of emotional attributes as well, but then within what we're given, we can either cultivate it or ignore it and so forth. And to me, empathy is something that's very close to love. It's definitely different. I think that's why we have two words for it. But as I look at myself and I realize that I might be closer to the end of my life than the beginning of my life and how I want to be remembered and the kind of person I want to have been, and I think many people are this way. I see this in the coaching that I do, that many people do seem to make a shift from, you know, acquisition and accomplishment to a qualitative way of living, even beyond any specific goal and that kind of thing. But then it's, it's like, okay, that's a major life shift. But then that question of how, right. And you're saying it's a choice. And I realize this is still, this is kind of an abstract conversation because we're, it's, again, individual, what does this mean for each person when they walk in the door at home or they show up at work, how they, how they are, what have you found for yourself that has been useful either as like a habit or a practice, something you've begun, or you stopped doing that has helped you, you think has helped you to cultivate this quality of, of, uh, being empathic.
0: Yeah. And in, in some ways, I think that, um, skepticism and, uh, Uh, I don't think skepticism is quite the right word. I think, In some ways, what I think is the opposite of empathy is uh, an inability to appreciate the world that you're living in and your life in that world. And so something that I've started doing in the last few years is literally practicing gratitude, taking some time every day to think of specific things. They can be big or small, abstract or concrete, but specific things that I'm appreciative of in my life in that moment. And that has been actually, I think, very helpful in helping me cultivate and sort of optimize my levels of empathy. Because if you are irritable, if you are disgruntled about things that are going on in your life that you're, you feel like you're being forced to do, or you're, you know, people being um, treating you poorly or anything like that, that is the uh, that's an empathy drain. Those things will drain your empathy faster than anything else. Um, if you feel like you're not getting a good deal in this life, uh, that you're being uh, unfairly treated in this life, and the antidote to that is to practice gratitude, in my opinion. And that's something that I've started. I started doing personally a, a couple of years ago after I, I came across some of the literature that shows it has all kinds of benefits, even health benefits, things like reducing hypertension and um, you know people uh, having a higher quality of life. Yeah, uh, gratitude is such an interesting subject for me
1: because sometimes, and I don't know if you have this experience yourself or you, you work with other people in this regard, but sometimes gratitude, attempting to practice gratitude can kind of backfire, I think, right? Because it's like intellectually, I can know I should be grateful, but emotionally, I might not feel it. And then there's this sense of like, well, why don't I feel the gratitude that I should have, especially when I'm comparing myself? Well, I have food, I have clothing, right? I'm not in a conflict zone. Like I can know all that, but it doesn't mean, again, it doesn't mean that I feel it. And I remember one time, Tony Robbins, who of course espouses gratitude as a, as a practice as well, when he talks about, he'll say, think about what you're grateful for and then think about why right? Like as a why as trying to access the emotion more fully, but what's your experience with this thing where gratitude can sometimes just be a concept and other times it could be something that we actually feel.
0: And how do we get closer to the feeling? Yeah. yeah. My thoughts on that is that, um, I think that a lot of, uh, cognitive processes, the, 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 the thoughts and sort of chains of, mental, you know, sort of uh, um, arithmetic you're doing on behind the scenes. uh, I think a lot of that can be likened to exercise. Uh, And so if you do, if you go to the gym or you go for a run or you do whatever you might do one time, um, it might be really challenging. If you make a habit of it, it starts getting easier and not only easier, but you start actually um, sort of doing it better and more naturally. Uh, And so, I think that to me, something like that, I, there are there are absolutely moments where I say, OK, before I go to sleep here, I better come up with three things, not in the mood to do this, don't feel like practicing gratitude. But I think that that's gotten less and less the longer I've been doing this. Uh, and I think that it's in part because, you know, our brains are, like you said earlier, our brains are very poorly understood um, in terms of when compared to things like the heart or the, the lungs or the kidney in terms of the very mechanics of how it all works. But one thing that's pretty well, pretty well figured out is there's a plasticity of how our minds work and that change can happen um, and practicing cognitive or, or behavioral techniques to change habits can leave someone in a sort of changed state. So I, that, that would be my response. I do think it's hard. And sometimes you do fall into a trap of, of comparison. Well, I had a really rough day. Can I just skip this today kind of thing? Um, and sometimes you do that. Sometimes I do that. Um, but on the other hand, uh, it's never, I, I think, it, I do think it's sometimes a trap to compare yourself to other people to say, look, I've got all these wonderful things in my life. Why do I feel this way? Um, asking the question, why do I feel this way is a, is a powerful tool, but only if it gives you better insight into what you want to do with that feeling uh, or how you want to address that feeling. If it's uh, used as a sort of um, uh, a way to make yourself feel worse about why you feel that way, then usually it's a not a useful thing, I would say. Yeah.
1: You know, on that point, you're, you're right. And why is such a fascinating question, because sometimes it can be the most empowering question we can ask. And other times it can be just an endless regression (laughs) that we use to make ourselves feel worse or stay stuck or whatever. It's totally amazing. Well, talking about, you know, some of these qualities, gratitude, being grateful, um, being empathic. One of them that I'm really struck by that you share about in the book is the quality of presence. And I think it was on a whiteboard. You wrote a note here with you. I think those were your words. Yep. But that was something that I got the sense. Maybe you could talk about why you wrote that, but I saw that. And that was, I think in your fourth year where earlier in your training, maybe you hadn't yet seen the power of just being with another. Will you talk about presence? Will you talk about that message on the
0: whiteboard and what you've learned about it since? Absolutely. I think that one of the Paradoxes in psychiatry and therapy in general is that we know that all these super different approaches to uh, therapy and the therapeutic alliance—they uh, might be night and day in terms of technique—but they all have been shown to be effective in, in various ways. And so, something like cognitive behavioral therapy is super different than a psychodynamic, uh, insight-oriented therapy. Is super different than um, acceptance and commitment therapy. There are all these techniques, and they're all incredibly unique. And, and yet they're all effective for different people. Why is that? The thing that they all have in common, this is my idea that's probably shared by a lot of people. Uh, in other words, they would say, oh no, I thought of that too uh, years and years ago, um, is that the thing that all of these approaches have in common is they're at the core is the human connection between a therapist and a, and a patient or just two people, right? And so, when any two people are, are in a room together, the thing that you can always count on is that they're present together. Uh, I I just I just watched some clip of Quentin Tarantino talking about uh, the movie going experience as being superior to, uh, watching a a show, a movie on your TV by yourself, which I might disagree with, but his point was it with the going to the cinema, you're having this shared experience. You have an individual experience with the movie, but it's within the context of this overall group. And that's a, that only happens one time in the entire universe. Uh, and that's what makes it a special, you don't know who's going to gasp and who's going to, uh, you know, share your emotional reaction to a a scene, et cetera. So um, I thought that that kind of resonated with me that there is something powerful in being together and the therapeutic alliance can only really happen when you're uh, feeling uh, like you're sharing an experience, right? And so, in the book, I talked about this particular patient, Charlie, who I saw over a couple of years in different environments, and I was with him as he got progressively sicker with a cancer diagnosis until at the at the very end of his life, which was was fairly well known that it was going to come at some point. Um, you know, he was largely unresponsive, and I visited him in a social way. In his uh, last hospital room. And I couldn't have a conversation with him, but I felt compelled to leave a little message on the whiteboard that was in the hospital room that just said that I was there. And it it gave me comfort to know that that message was there all the way until he was no longer even in the hospital until after he had passed away, presumably. Um, And it reminded me, it's such a basic human sort of moment to me because it reminded me even of what little children do when children are beginning to go off to school or they're beginning to uh, go away uh you know or to a sleepover at a friend's house or something like that they'll often have what in the field we'll call a transitional object something that they bring with them that reminds them of home uh of their family of whatever it is that they're venturing away from and so that power of this teddy bear this uh this little trinket, I've got, I've got all kinds of silly things on my office desk. Uh, here we go. Uh, oh, there we, there we go. Uh, anyway, so my point is there are all kinds of things that have meaning to me uh, that are here and make me feel more comfortable. Leaving that tiny message on the whiteboard just made me, as the person who was surviving that experience, feel okay with walking out the door because I knew I was leaving a tiny part of myself behind that makes
1: me think about how remarkable it is that we can be present even when we're not physically present. We can, you know, someone can feel close or connected and conversely we can be together and feel an enormous emotional distance. Right. But I, I just think this is an interesting thought because it's one that I think we live with, but we don't necessarily, a, we're not necessarily aware of and B we don't cultivate and how the, how our lives could be improved if we did you know, that kind of thing. So thank you for for sharing that. I was touched by by the thoughtfulness and your example in the book. You mentioned Charlie had cancer. I understand you've had your own experience with cancer as well.
0: Yeah, it, I'm going to be very uh, open and frank because that's how I approach this topic. But I, you know, so content warning for anyone who who's uh, anxious to uh you know, doesn't want to hear about cancer or end of life stuff, but I'm currently living with cancer. So, um, I'm, as you can hopefully see, I'm well, I'm at the office, I'm feeling good. Um, my last couple of scans have been very encouraging, uh, but, uh, I've been living with this for almost four years. Sorry to hear that. Thank you. Yeah, no, but it's, I appreciate, I appreciate that comment, but at the same time, it's, um, it's something it, I almost brought this topic up earlier, but I didn't want to jump the gun. I, when we were talking about gratitude and empathy and how do you, how do you become, how do you view life differently? Um, I wouldn't recommend this for anyone, but a major life stressor like living with cancer and suddenly out of the blue being diagnosed with something really changed how I viewed the world in all kinds of ways. I think that maybe within the first few months, I I felt less empathic. And then beyond that, I actually felt more and more empathic. And I I was more able to connect with people. Uh, And I also changed the way that I view every single day and what kind of things I want to do with my life. Uh, And that was, you know, I I wish I were under different circumstances. I really do. But under the circumstances that I'm in, or within the circumstances that I'm in, I have to say that it has brought certain gifts as well.
1: You've talked about and written about the depression that has come with that. And will you
0: talk about that and
1: how you've dealt with it?
0: Yeah. So, you know, it's hard to, um, it's hard to compare, you know, like my own experience with anyone else's in particular, or with my concept of what a clinical depression looks like or anything like that. Um, But, you know, for me personally, uh, when I was diagnosed with this was a kidney cancer. It was stage three at first in 2018. At that moment, I looked up the survival rates for five years and it was like 50, 50 essentially. And then when it metastasized in, in my lungs, uh, it was down to like 8% at that moment uh, for five years survival. Now, what I didn't know at that moment was that, uh, survival rates are backwards looking. So, uh, they're looking at data from the last five years, not the next five years. And you're not a curve, you're a dot on that curve, right? You're an individual. And so it's a trap to suddenly get this diagnosis and then feel like your world is over, like the future that you thought you had, it is gone. It's not gone. It's just different, I should say. And so um, it's a trap where very often people have to come to terms with the idea that life is different than they thought it was, but that at a certain point you realize that, uh, life has value. What lies ahead of you still has value. Uh, and it can be as, uh, incredible as, as, you know, serendipity might allow, but only if you put yourself in the position to actually engage in life, if you become, um, despondent and withdraw from your life in the face of, of, uh, uh, you know, a a potentially lethal illness, um, then you are forfeiting your hand. Uh, You're giving up what opportunities you may have. Um, If I had done that, I never would have, uh, I never would have had my second little boy. I never would have written this book that we've been talking about. Uh, I never would have written all these essays that led to the book, Uh, all kinds of things that I look back on now as some of the most incredible parts of my life. Uh, Seeing my almost five-year-old become a a more fully formed person, all of those were things that weren't guaranteed, but that I had to, you know, sort of commit to being an active participant in my life again before they could actually happen.
1: You know, that, that idea of being an active participant in one's life is also an idea that's interesting to me because I think we kind of go in and out of that right at periods in our life or at least throughout any given day <laughs> that there's things that are difficult or they're unpleasant and there's escape and you know avoidance and this kind of thing. But I appreciate you talking about this, and it sure brings up a lot for me. I am curious to know when you get a diagnosis like that and it changes the way you see the world and the way you live having lived with that, living with that now, do you think there's any way that one can have that kind of life-changing perspective without having to go through a diagnosis? Like how can we more fully appreciate our lives or how can we more fully engage with life or how can we make, how can we more fully fulfill our potential,
0: this kind of thing without going through that? Do you think it's possible? And if so, how could we do it? Right. I, I always, uh, ask myself that same question because I run into this very paradoxical thing of like, you know, I wouldn't wish this upon anyone. And yet I wish people had the view, you know, the view of it, you know, just temporarily uh, just spend an hour, you know, uh, knowing that, knowing that your time is limited. Cause that's true of all of us, right? That's something we all share. Nobody knows uh, what you know, um, is going to happen in their own lives. Some of us just have a, have been given a sort of a glimpse of, of the likely uh, path forward. Um, But, but no one has a guarantee to live to a hundred or anything like that. So I have asked myself that question quite a bit. Um, And I haven't come up with, you know, the right answer. I wish, I wish that I had. Um, Sometimes I will be in conversations with people and I will notice myself. Saying in my own inner monologue, my goodness, you've got to change your life, uh, you know, because uh, you are not living according to what you want. You know, your values say that you want to be close with your children, but you're working 80 hours a week. You know, your values say that you want to get along better with your family, but you're um, doing X, Y, or Z to distance yourself from your family. Sometimes I'll catch myself saying these things to myself. You know, uh, I know that I want X, Y, and Z. And why am I acting in this other way that's counter to that? So, you know, one of the things that I would advise people, and I, I don't know if this is totally feasible or if it's wishful thinking, but I would advise people to really set out what their goals are, not like concrete goals, but what kind of outcomes will make them most content, not like happy, joyful, but content that the life they're living is the one they want to be living. Because one thing I know for sure, and this is something that the diagnosis really hammered home for me, is that there's so much of what we do that is based on the inertia of just doing what comes next and the feeling of responsibility to do what's asked of us. And those two things are very dangerous to me because we can build up a certain momentum and just keep going down that road, even though it might make us miserable or leave us feeling hollow or lead us down a path that we just never really wanted to be on. And we forget that we're empowered to make choices and we can say no to things and we can say yes to things that someone else looks at and says, why on earth would you do that? So those are pieces of I don't know. I, I, uh, it, they're not wisdom, but they're definitely insights that I've had since the diagnosis that I wish I could convey to people.
1: Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I'm reminded here again of this difference between the, like the intellectual, the understanding of something and the emotion and the experience of something and how there seems to be, in my case, at least often like a glass ceiling between those. And uh, I feel like I'm touching, you know, I'm accessing that emotion but it's also kind of scary. Like it's raw. It's, it's not something I, I I've read some of the Buddhist teacher um, Chö, Chögyang Chungpa and he wrote a book called the Shambhala, the path of the sacred warrior. And of course he puts it very poetically about letting your raw heart be open to the world and things like this. And, and in moments I feel like, Oh, I can, I can do that. I'm willing to do that. And then there's other times
0: when it's like, that's hard, man. <laughs> well, thank you for talking about that. Um, it, I, I just want to add, you know, there's, there's something to this idea that so many of people that we consider enlightened and, and sort of having figured it out, uh, live very basic existences, you know, um, there's, there's a certain um, sort of, um, I don't know, uh, the material aspects of, of our lives, sometimes they can be wonderful, and sometimes they can probably do more harm than good. Yeah, I, I
1: think you're absolutely right. And as you said, you know, many people who are perhaps enlightened do live a some existence. And the, even the Zen saying of before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. After enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. But even for those that, that do seem to have it you know, figured out or know something the rest of us don't. Like I was just reading online a little bit more a couple nights ago about Alan Watts, you know, the celebrated philosopher and Zen teacher who died of alcoholism. I think before he was 60 and it's just amazing. And Chögyung Chungpa was also a well-known alcoholic and so forth. And that's not even to say of the spiritual teachers that seem to have other moral, moral <laughs> issues, but none of us in this human incarnation seem to,
0: you know, walk on water yet. No, that's, you're, you're absolutely right about that. Um, we're all imperfect in our own ways. And um, yeah, I think you, you've got that. You've got that right. Something I want to talk about
1: is, um, is the power of questions. Right? You share an anecdote in the book about your first, uh, as I understand it, was like your first therapeutic uh, appointment, and you began with kind of a soliloquy about what you hoped this would do for the, for the client or the patient, and later you learned that it was more effective to start with a simple question. Will you talk about what you've learned about the power of questions?
0: Absolutely. So questions can be so broad that they, uh, open up the entire world, uh, to someone else. You know, they give them the opportunity to choose whatever sort of answer that leads them down a certain path that they want. And they can be so narrow that they close off important things. So, um, the more that I practice psychiatry, the more I have appreciated the power of open-ended questions, at least in the beginning of a conversation, because as a psychiatrist, my goal is to figure out what's important to the person. Uh, they might not start off with what's important, but if you let them talk for long enough, you're going to get there. Whereas if you fill out a form that has checkboxes of yes or no, or maybe, you um, are you having trouble sleeping at night? Are you eating? Okay. Are you experiencing feelings of guilt or uh, low interest in activities? These are symptom checklists, you know, that is the fastest way to a diagnosis and the slowest way to figuring out what is bothering a person or how you can help them. So I have figured out that, uh, with, with, with more experience, I've learned that it is good to start out a conversation by just figuring out how you can get to know someone. And, um, that's a very powerful thing to, to ask without sort of agenda. What brings you in? What's on your mind? You know, those kinds of things are so basic and yet so powerful for uh, someone like me who wants to know uh, truly how they can help. Yeah,
1: that those and they're so simple, right? That what brought you into the office today? What's on your mind? I read once about that's the question that Facebook asks. It, as the prompt to have you make your post and that they've of course toyed with you know they've they've tested different questions and found a, above and beyond that what's on your mind is like one of the right. best
0: prompts <laughs> when i was in uh, training and supervision this isn't in the book i don't think but um one of my i, I there was there's a process where you um with a supervisor you'll present your process notes like this is how this therapy session went the patient said this, and I said this, and then they responded this way, and then I responded this way. And the supervisor who's well-established and well-trained can point out ways that you might've gone in a different direction or you know, consider how it might've impacted the patient. And it was like one of my very first uh, sessions with a very well-respected supervisor. And I said, so um, how have you been doing? And right off the bat, he sort of stopped me and said, we don't care how he's been doing. We care what's on his mind. And it was like my, <laughs> my um, it, it seemed so strange. I thought, and then there was another version of it that was like, what's new. And it was even worse. It was like, no, no, no. Like, what's new is what's new, but that's not why the patient's there, the patient's there for help with something or because they need to figure something out. And what's new might just give you a tiny little corner of that. So what's on your mind is a much more powerful question. Yeah, that that's great. And I imagine, you know,
1: like reading a transcript of an interaction or uh, just evaluating questions, there's this whole other component that wouldn't necessarily show up in that, which is then the power of silence, right? Will you talk about what have you learned about silence in the interaction with another person in a therapeutic or maybe a coaching kind of situation? What have you learned about it and how do you use it
0: deliberately? Silence makes most people pretty uncomfortable, Um, I think in the book, I talk about this sort of seven second rule. And so when I talk about this topic, I like to demonstrate it just briefly for anyone listening um, where we're going to practice silence for like a good seven seconds. I'm going to count in my head and then I'll come back in starting now. So that's seven seconds to me Um, that. I might've even rushed it because I was on, I was nervous, you know, to, to not make everybody wait too long. It's uncomfortably long when no one's talking. Uh, And one of the reasons that in, in my field, we're trained to become used to and sort of um, exist within the silence and not rush into the next topic of conversation is because the silence is a tension that we all experience that sometimes can break through a layer of defenses where a patient might actually break that silence with something else that is underneath the surface. Uh, They might actually bring something up that leads you to the next thing that leads you to something important. And so conveying to a patient that you're not afraid of the silence That it's okay to just sit together quietly in the room for a couple minutes, you know, if you have to. Um, You don't want to stagnate, but you don't want to rush into another superficial topic when a patient might need the space to actually um, take a moment to actually think of, not even consciously, but just arrive at something that's more uh, under the surface, that's more important to them.
1: You know, that is such a cool way to, for me to think of silence is that it's as attention that can help like break through or elicit something that previously wasn't available and that you literally, and that's one of the things that's so beautiful and fascinating to me about these interactions. And I love your term, the therapeutic alliance, is that you can help create that, that someone can then bring something forth that was already there, that for whatever reason they didn't bring forth already or maybe weren't aware of or whatever. That's, that's a cool that's a cool way to think of silence. Thank you for that.
0: When, one one uh, demonstration of it. If you think about the any time that you are walking in a hallway and someone else is walking in the opposite direction, you're about to pass. Even if you're your friends, you are almost never going to pass without verbalizing. Hey, how are you doing? Even though you don't, you're not even stopping. Right. You're yep. just you're saying, how are you doing to fill the you're conveying hello, but you could do that with a wave. You could do that with a nod, but, um, Hey, how are you doing? I just love that question because it's so false. Uh, it's literally just there as a placeholder to convey. I see you. Yeah, I see you, you know, and we, oh, yeah. we're not going to walk by each other in silence. I, I think that it makes people very uncomfortable.
1: You know, I love that you brought this up because I learned from Sadhguru, the spiritual teacher. He said that it's his belief, and I might be misquoting him, so I just want to acknowledge that, that part of the mental unwellness in our culture is based on the dissonance of that simple question, is that we ask, and then of course we don't. They're not really wanting a full explanation, and so basically we lie, and there's this dissonance between our experience and what we're expressing. And he said, in India, we don't ask people how they're doing. We just look at them. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> wow, I didn't know that. That's that's really really fascinating. Yeah, I I, I don't want to make uh, again a self-aggrandizing comparison, but I did write a piece uh, for the Harvard Health blog where I was trying to say, this was after uh, this this was after like the day that I was literally waiting for the results of my uh, cancer test. Uh, I ran into a colleague and he said, "Hey, how you doing?" And I said, "Oh." You don't want to know, basically it's it's a longer conversation than this. And he's a good person. He stopped and we talked a little bit, but uh, it it prompted me to think, let's not ask ourselves how we're doing if we don't actually care or have the time to listen. You know, so I wanted to start a movement and I've tried to do this for myself, uh, but I still sometimes fail at it even to this day where I try to say it's nice to see you if it's nice to see the person Um, or even I see you uh, is a harder thing to get away with, to pull off. But I think that's so interesting that in, in other cultures, this isn't a phenomenon.
1: Yeah. Well, and as I understand, even in, in the Indian culture, that literally translated namaskaram is I see you, right? Mm -hmm. Or maybe more poetically, the divinity in me sees the divinity in you, but how beautiful, even though it's become colloquial and it's a "hey" kind of thing in many cases, it's still that literally that's what they're, you know, saying, I love that. It's fascinating. Yeah. Okay. So we've talked a lot about this book in your life and your career. What haven't, before we transition to the enlightening lightning round, what haven't we covered that you think maybe the listener would
0: benefit from or enjoy hearing about? All right. I've got a couple of things I'm going to, I'm going to go through that I think we haven't covered. So one is why would someone go to medical school to then sub-specialize in psychiatry if you're someone out there listening and you're interested in you know you're listening to this podcast you're probably interested in in things like how do you uh live a better life uh, how do you how can you achieve better you know levels of contentment that kind of thing um you might be considering, or you might even be in a, in a field where you're going to turn this into part of your, your work, your life, your life's goal. And why would so, so a little corner of that is, well, what kind of path should I take? And what I would say is I ended up in psychiatry really through the back door because I first, I, I really loved psychology. And then I decided I wanted to be a doctor like my father. And then I said, well, now that I'm on the path toward being a doctor, I realized, no, I, I really want to do what what um, I'm most passionate about, connecting with people. And so I, I think within this little field of medicine, psychiatry is the, the best for me. And so that's how I ended up in psychiatry. Um, but there are, you know, There are degrees out there that are uh, better at connecting with people than psychiatrists, things like PsyDs and PhDs in psychology, social work, coaches, people that are doing work that has nothing to do with my medical training, where they get to connect with people at a much more basic level or more thorough level, deeper level, all kinds of things. So I would never discourage someone from going into psychiatry if that's what they wanted to do, but I would encourage people to open your eyes to the entire world of uh, human connection within the professional realm. There's, there's a tremendous array out there that you can, you can get exposure to and sort of get a feel for and then let that guide you in your, in your path. I suspect that's exactly what somebody listening to this, needed to hear, and maybe they didn't even know it. (laughs) So (laughs) thank you. The second concept that I've learned through circumstances, I don't think I would have come across this if I hadn't followed the exact path that I've been on, is that for much of my life, and I suspect this uh, is true of a lot of people out there, I uh, lived a certain life that was uh, where a certain amount of my self worth to my own estimation was based upon achievement that fit into a certain box, academic achievement, writing papers that would get into medical journals, even going back you know twenty years, getting into a certain kind of college, that kind of thing has been hardwired into me in part because of how I, just who I am and in part because of uh, what was instilled upon me. And it's only until I really, you know, uh, became an adult and had the threat of all of those things sort of lifted from me based on this illness that I've realized that, that at this moment, the things that I find most important have almost nothing to do with achievement in that way. They have much more to do with trying to align my actions and behaviors with my values. And that might be, again, trying to be a better dad to my kids, trying to be a better husband to my wife, trying to be a better son to my parents. Those things carry so much more weight than they used to for me. And now it it really, I'm sure, sounds silly to, to a lot of people out there listening, but really pause and think about your day-to-day life and how much of it is spent doing those kinds of things versus, uh, trying to achieve the next milestone in your academic training or what have you. And, um, those kinds of, uh, achievements, getting a public, uh, a publer, uh, getting a paper published into a journal. Um, I, I hope my, uh, my, my, um, Colleagues at work are listening as I say this, they mean so much less to me now than they did 10 years ago. Um, they're still really important when they're important, right? When something, a project, a research study that I've partaken in, that I've participated in, gets accepted somewhere and, and might help change the field in a way that might help patients, that is extraordinarily uh, rewarding for me. But when I'm on a paper, That gets accepted somewhere and i know that this paper probably isn't going to move the needle that is uh sometimes something that i think is time lost uh and and i say to myself i'm not going to take that opportunity the next time it arises if i can identify it in advance i'm going to redirect that energy toward the things that i think are really important whatever they may be we all have different ideas about that
1: yeah i appreciate that view you know maybe a kind of a corollary to that. I, I look at my dad who was an extraordinarily successful entrepreneur. And I often ask, you know, could he have achieved everything he did in a fraction of the time, 70%, 80% of the time he invested. And I suspect he could have, you know, but I don't think he asked himself the kinds
0: of questions that you are now. <clears throat> it's very hard to thread that needle to know how much is enough to achieve your, your quote unquote dreams or, you know, to, to, to get there, to make it, you know, Um, when I look at um, people in politics or celebrities of a certain kind, or, you know, and, and I, and they just continue to grind. I, the only way I can think of it is that that grind must be how they achieve a sense of flow, how they find some sense of peace in the world. Because when I look at the grind, sometimes I think, you know, they made it, they don't have to keep Doing, they don't have to keep trying so hard, uh, but but they do, and the way I think about it is that is their state of being that they must not know how to be content any other way. yeah
1: i I'm with you, and I'm so fascinated by this. This could be its own whole book to explore you know what motivates us and whether people can be driven to these incredible levels of achievement by what I would call empowering emotions versus it seems like the majority of people. Who succeed, at least in a worldly, according to a worldly measure, are actually driven by very disempowering emotions. And I think a lot, and I realize it's just my judgment, right? But my armchair philosophy, but I think about that saying, uh, by Jung about a man will do anything, no matter how absurd in order to avoid facing his own soul. (laughs) And I think that people do do that. Okay. Awesome. Well, thank you for that. Um, how are you doing by the way? I'm doing well. Good. Okay. Well, if you're good, then I want to go ahead and transition us to the enlightening lightning round. Let's do it. Okay. So this is a series of questions on a variety of topics. My aim for the most part is to ask the question and stand aside. You're welcome to answer as long as you want, but I'm going to, I'm going to work to keep us just moving through this.
0: Okay. All
1: right. Sounds good. All right. Question number one, please complete the following sentence with something other than A box of chocolates. Life is like a...
0: Series of opportunities with all kinds of consequences. I think that we exist in this moment in time that's warped at all times in our perception by what's just happened and also what we hope or, or worry or fear might happen. And so in that moment, we always have the opportunity based on our free will to make choices. Sometimes we have more choice than other times, but it's always an opportunity. And that opportunity always comes with uh, rewards and consequences and uh, in, in, in everything in between. That's what I think about life. Okay. Thank you. Number two, here I'm
1: borrowing the technologist and investor Peter Thiel's question. What important truth do very few people agree with you on?
0: I think that psychiatry to some degree is pretending to be something that it's not. I think that psychiatry was invented by a neurologist out of wishful thinking that we could look at the mind from a top-down process as opposed to a bottom-up process, which would take another hundred years from when, when Freud was first uh, publishing. Um, and you know before that certainly uh there have been other psychologists from all kinds of uh, uh different parts of the world um but psychiatry as a field right now is very clearly trying to be a medical subspecialty and partially succeeding and one of the bargains this is the part that i think is most controversial about what i'll say because everything I've said so far, maybe some people are nodding along, like, "Yeah, I get it." Um, but one of the the bargains that we've made to become a medical specialty is to create diagnoses where they don't exist. That have we we've justified them because of a certain degree of validity and reliability. If you show five psychiatrists this patient, they'll agree that that they meet criteria for this diagnosis, but. What I think is that at its most granular level, most uh, quote-unquote diagnoses in psychiatry are probably amalgams of lots of different things happening and that we can make patterns out of almost anything in medicine and as people in general. And psychiatry has become very good at that. And so I think one of the risks of our field is that we have gotten away from treating individuals as individuals and that one of the redemptions for our fields, sometime down the road, it might be 10 years from now, it might be 100 years from now, will be to look at a person as an individual and to offer what we think is best for that individual, regardless of what categories they might fit into.
1: Well said. Thank you. Question number three. If you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip on it,
0: what would it say? I suppose after this conversation, it has to say, I see you. (laughs) I love it.
1: Okay. Question number four, what book other than your own, have you gifted or recommended most often?
0: Most recently, I've been recommending uh, The Codebreaker. This is a a book by uh, Walter Isaacson about Jennifer Doudna and lots of uh, competitors and colleagues who are um, unraveling this amazing natural tool and trying to expand upon it called CRISPR, uh, to edit the human genome, um, to potentially do all kinds of wonderful things and potentially do all kinds of controversial things. You know, if we had the ability to, uh, have parents choose to have taller children or less tall children, is that a good thing? Well, probably not such a good thing, but what about to eliminate, um, uh, things like hemophilia or, you know, genetic disorders. Well, that's probably a very good thing. Most people would agree on that. So finding that line is a a really interesting part of that book. And I've been recommending that to a lot of people who I think would be, um, interested in it. And, and, uh, one, one thing that I, I I keep thinking about and trying to respond to this question is, um, that there's a, an old Roald Dahl book called Danny, the champion of the world. Are you familiar with this book? No, I love Roald Dahl, but I don't know this book. So I'm going to be very frank. I haven't read it since I was very young in in grade school. And so it might not be like I remember it, but (laughs) when I read it, I said, that's my favorite book, you know, and it remained my favorite book for a long time, so much so that I think I haven't reread it because I'm afraid to read it and realize like it's not as good as I thought it was. But in this book, uh there's a father character and a a son character and the father is off very often poaching pheasants, which uh, like poaching birds from some large farm. And, um, I remember as I was a small child reading this book, thinking that that's going to be a, an important part of life is knowing how to poach poultry, you know, and, and, and then as I've uh, grown up, I've realized like that, that probably represented something else in the book. It wasn't about the poaching of the pheasants. That was really the, the important part. Uh, it, it was something else. So um, I don't know. That question just reminded me of that, and I think I have to reread that book. But anyway, it's if it's like it was when I was nine. It's a wonderful book. It sounds like if your son is five, he's getting close to
1: where he might also appreciate that book.
0: Right.
1: Right. Maybe we can read it together. Yeah, that's that's great. So you've traveled a fair amount in your life. Uh, Of course, pandemics change travel for all of us. But what is one thing you do or you did when you travel to make your travel less painful
0: or more enjoyable? Traveling with people that you that you travel well with is an incredibly important thing. I'm thinking, you know, this question is landing with me at a particularly bad time. Forget about the pandemic for a moment. We've in the last four and a half years, I've only traveled with a, a small, small, small child. And uh, we don't travel well together, even though I adore him to the moon and back. And so uh, traveling with people that you travel well with, that you enjoy seeing the world with, doing things with, that's irreplaceable. And if someday, if my boy listens to this uh, interview, I hope he forgives me for saying that, but just know that that we do not travel the same way.
1: Traveling with children is its, own, is its own art and science, no doubt. And, and what you're saying about a traveling companion, oh my goodness, it's like a plus one, minus one, the difference between having one that you enjoy and that makes the journey go smoother versus right. one that's, oh man, you're always waiting for, or you can't agree on anything. Yep. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Um, question number six, what is something you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well?
0: Right. Sometimes I wonder, am I succeeding in uh, that effort to try to live better? You know, I mean, I guess that's a big theme of the uh, the show. But I, uh, you know, think I've I've made a lot of changes in the last few years uh, in the context of this uh, diagnosis that we've talked about. Um, I've given. I used to love you know, those, those incredibly, uh, inexpensive ramen noodles that you can get at any corner store. I used to love them. Uh, and I just have this hang up, like, like, uh, that's probably not so good for someone with one kidney, one part of one kidney. And, uh, uh, so I've given that up and I miss it every day. (laughs) Those ramen noodles. Um, and you know, at a more, at a more, uh, I don't know philosophical level. I've I've tried really to ask myself: Is this what I want to be spending my day doing? Is this what I want to be spending my energy doing? That's a theme you know I've already talked about a number of times today with you. But the, I can't tell you how many times the answer is no. Actually, five years ago I would have done this differently because right now I can see I don't want to do that. You know I'm going to change the way I'm doing that or approaching that. So there's a really concrete and a really more uh, vague answer for you. Thank
1: you. I'm reminded of something I once read that Ernest Hemingway said or wrote, never do what you sincerely do not want to do. <laughs> I was like, that's interesting. I try to phrase my advice when I give it in the affirmative, but that's the abstain from. It. Yeah. So, okay. Uh, question number seven. What's one thing? What's one thing you wish every American knew?
0: Oh, it's hard not to answer this in the context of our current circumstances, around how how divided we are and it, how it divided it feels. Um, yeah, I guess I would say, I, I guess I will answer it in that context, and I'll say that we have so much more in common than we do, uh, than 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 what separates us. There's so much more humanity shared between us than than uh, what, what separates us. I, I feel like I really wish if only we had that sense embedded in us that our lives would just be so much more harmonious and, and less uh, filled with whatever descriptor you want to call this current era of, you know, division and, and rage and being angry with one another even though we've never met, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. Question number eight. What's the
1: most important or useful thing you've ever learned about making relationships work?
0: I think that you have to meet people where they are. Uh, and so this is true personally, this is true professionally, any kind of relationship where you're trying to connect with another individual and share an experience or share a connection, share a relationship, etc. Um, if someone gives you, you know, the, the some sort of signal that they're not. You're not seeing eye to eye, that you're talking past each other, that they're not ready uh, or that you're not ready to do the thing. You know, they're too ready to do something that you're not quite ready to do. You know, trying to say to yourself, can I adjust, can I meet this person where they are or is that a bridge too far? Uh, Am I able to do that? So um, therapeutically, sometimes, uh, you know, there's this little terrible joke in the book that's widely known in the field about a psychiatrist changing a light bulb, it only takes one, but the light bulb has to want to be changed, you know, uh, and it takes a really long time. Um, The, you know, sometimes patients aren't ready to do something, but they are ready to do something else. And so even if it's not what you prescribe, but it's, it's halfway there or a quarter of the way there, you take that and you try to align with them in that goal, because that's better than not going anywhere. And I think you could extend that to personal relationships. I think
1: so. Thank you for that. And question number nine, question number nine, aside from compound interest, what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about
0: money? (laughs) I haven't learned that much. I I think the more I learn, the less I know about money. But um, the first most important thing is that we can uh, feel pretty content with a lot less money than we think uh, we can. Um, you know, I'll just be very frank that, you know, I, I grew up uh, the son of a cardiologist who gave us a really comfortable life, um, which is probably a very different life than, than you may have grown up with, than someone else may have. I don't want to make any assumptions, but, um, but it's also uh, more, you know, we grew up with more money than I currently uh, make, uh, and as a psychiatrist, and I've learned actually that I can live really comfortably like that, with less money than I grew up with. Uh, That's sort of a a mind-blowing idea because I spent the first 25 years of my life thinking, oh boy, how am I gonna match the lifestyle that I grew up with, you know? Uh, So that's been a really interesting thing to learn. And then the second, this would also work for, um, potentially for an earlier question of, you know, what's something that people might disagree with, but more and more I think they agree, that most money, the idea of money is, is really a, a construct that's made up entirely, you know? And so we've all agreed to uh, play by this rule for the most part that we'll treat money like it's a real thing, but it's not uh, in the way that kids understand it. Uh, it's something very more, much more complex. And that when, when you, when I learned that idea it somewhat shook me uh, because you realize that you spend so much of your life's energy trying to accumulate this thing that is pretend uh, that we're all pretending. We're share we're agreeing to pretend uh, that it's a thing. Yeah.
1: And I think now cryptocurrency is exposing that in some, some new ways, right? It's right. It's pretty remarkable. Yeah. Thank you for that. I, I don't think there's anything
0: more clear about how, it, you know, it's, it's an agreement to call something valuable, uh, than the early days of crypto where it's like, Oh, this is valuable because people are willing to pay for it. That's what, you know, and you could say the same thing for certain currencies, all currencies. So, um, it's, it's incredible. But like I said, the more I learn, the less I know about this topic. So yeah, the the faster we move on, the better for me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, just real quick, a point of trivia on this as well. I just heard on, uh, I, I've started listening to Apple News. Uh, it's kind of in between USA Today and NPR. And uh-huh. so it's very listenable, like eight minutes. And they always end with kind of an interesting segment of some sort. And one of them last week was about how last year, during the pandemic, there were 5 million new millionaires created globally. It blew my mind. that this whole thing of decoupling, you know, a resource, a, a whatever gold or timber, or something else from a currency. is just amazing. And who knows yeah. what it means for the future of humanity, universal basic income or something else who knows. Right. Okay. I'm um, speaking of money. One thing I have done to express gratitude to you for making time to talk with me and uh, everyone listening is I have gone to the micro lending site, Kiva.org. And I have made a hundred dollar micro loan to an entrepreneur in the Philippines named Joy. She's 30 years old She has two kids. She and her husband run a fishing business. So they will use this uh, money to buy a fishing net and materials to make a fish trap. So I hope, and by the way, I won't receive any interest from this when she repays it, when Joy repays this, but it'll go to the field partner who facilitated it to hopefully become a virtuous cycle where other people will improve the quality of their lives in the same way. So thank you for giving me a reason to make that microloan.
0: That's great. Thank you so much for doing that. My
1: pleasure. Okay. So the last part of the interview here is, is about writing and creativity. Uh, your habits and routines might ask you a question about marketing and promotion or publishing. But something that we've talked for 90 minutes already and we haven't touched on is the fact that you're not only a writer, you're not only a doctor and a father and a husband, but you're a cartoonist. <laughs> Will you talk about where, how do you see, like, how does cartooning fit into your life? And how is a life of creativity really kind of one thing, if it is?
0: Right. Well, let me first um, put a disclaimer that I'm a cartoonist because I say I'm a cartoonist and because I've drawn some cartoons. I'm not a cartoonist because I know how to be a cartoonist. Uh, You know, In other words, I have no, um, how do I put it? I have no uh, gravitas within cartooning, except to say that I enjoy doing it. Um, and where it came from was it, the very first time I ever did a doodle with the idea of sharing it to someone with a punchline or, a, a, you know, a, a gag cartoon sort of embedded was when I, when my son was first born and I was up at all hours of the night in the early days, but sometimes he would fall asleep, but I couldn't like get into a sleep because then I would be uh, awakened. Like as soon as I fell asleep, it was like that kind of thing. So I got into the habit of when I was on duty with my son, I would, I would stay awake and I would doodle these cartoons because I couldn't do, other things. Uh, I was like, I, the, you know, when you're in charge of this tiny newborn, you sort of have to be on call and ready. And I was like, well, this is, just feels like I, I have this new iPad. I'm going to do this and uh, it'll be something that I can sort of entertain myself with. And then I put it down. And I stopped doing it. And then when the diagnosis hit a few years later, I started, or actually uh, about uh, 13 months later, I picked it up again because, like writing, cartooning is something that I do to help me process my experience of the world. It helps me make concrete something that I've noticed that I feel like I need to articulate in order to better understand it. And so I, I've i done all kinds of cartoons. Some of them are psychiatrically related and some of them are completely off the wall out there having nothing to do with anything, but whatever the topic of the cartoon is. And I just love I love it more than anyone else loves my stuff, you know? So this is something that like the writing I've always hoped I was a decent writer getting this book published was sort of like a, Hey, maybe you're, maybe you're pretty good at writing. You're good enough to write this book. Anyway. Um, cartooning, I have no hope whatsoever that someone's going to be like, you've got it kid. You're going to be a cartoonist never going to happen, but I do it anyway. And I love it. You know, it's one of my favorite things to do. That's awesome. I'm,
1: I'm really Glad to hear that. And I hope that people listening take inspiration from your example of doing something because you love it and having the courage, I would imagine it does take some courage to put it out there in the world, to put it online or in the case of the book, to publish it, right? Because to be honest, my perspective, you shared some things in the book that were not necessarily flattering about yourself, but you did it with an awareness. And I think that many people, it's what's that saying that doubt kills more dreams than failure ever will. Yeah. And and yeah. you have put this out in the world and your love for it is evident. So thank you for that example.
0: Absolutely. I think you're right on there that, you know, nobody wants to read a book, by the way, where the protagonist is, uh, you know, fully self-actualized and just firing on all cylinders, you know, uh, there's got to be. And if I was going to do an honest reflection of what my time uh, in training was like, it had to be filled with self-doubt and lots of things that were not that flattering. Uh, and, and, um, I, yeah, I think that that's the only way that book could be written, but thank you.
1: What was the moment you knew you were going to write this book?
0: There, there's a particular moment. So it it exists not at the beginning of the journey and not obviously at the end, but somewhere in the midst. Um, by that point I had already been contacted. So I don't, so the the way that this progressed was, um, you know, I wrote, wrote my whole life in various ways in different formats. Um, once I was diagnosed, I had this weird, unique perspective as a physician and a patient. And I started looking at the medical system from the patient's perspective and seeing all the ways it's very strange and all the ways it's imperfect. And I wanted to write essays about that. I wanted to write essays about what my experience as a patient was like. So I started doing that. And one of those pieces got the attention of a literary agent who asked me if I'd ever thought about writing a book. And first this was like a wonderful opportunity that I thought about a lot. I'd, you know, over the years uh, reached out to literary agents without much success or really any success. And so the idea that someone was coming to me, asking me about this was wonderful. I said, yes, of course, uh, I've thought about this my whole life. Um, and so then we had to come up with an idea and we, we went through a whole series of different options where I thought maybe we can sort of take the ideas I've put out in these essays and, and turn them into something tangible that's uh, worthy of a book, and the idea kept being sort of uh, coming back as sort of insufficient, both in from the agent's perspective, but my own as well. We needed something original. We needed something where I was an authority on that story. Uh, we needed something that was based on truth but with some liberties taken to protect privacy, uh, you know, we needed uh, something that we could sell. This was the truth of the matter. So there were several months where we were bouncing ideas back and forth, where I thought this is never going to happen. I had this great opportunity to get signed up with a literary agent, but in fact, it's just, uh, that's where the story ends. And then one day, uh, this just happens to be true that my best ideas always come to me when I'm in the shower. Uh, it's be, i think it's because it's usually first thing in the morning and it's usually when like all the rest of the noise of my life is is out blocked out and there's not anything happening uh besides my own inner thoughts you know it's pretty much on autopilot and so i'm able to be by myself quietly for a moment for 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 uh, 10 minutes and um i thought you know i had a pretty interesting experience in training nobody really knows what it's like to take an MD and turn them into a psychiatrist. That idea is a story that I, I can't think of a way it's been told in a really captivating, interesting way. And I could make it interesting by telling it as a first person narrative, where I met my wife, where I experienced, you know, this uh, sort of uh, state school to Harvard transition with these really brilliant people around me. Um, and they all had their own interesting stories. I could, do like a Grey's Anatomy version of this that would, I think, be compelling to uh, readers from all across the spectrum, you know, people who don't really like medical memoirs to people who really love medical memoirs. Uh, And so when I thought of the idea, I said, I think that's it. And I didn't know it was going to happen until A, I ran it by the literary agent and she said, that's great. That's that could be a, a big book. And then B, I had to get my wife's permission to tell our story from my own perspective. When she said, okay, then I knew this was going to happen. That was the moment when I said, you know, the biggest hurdles are now behind me. The the, the agent saying it's going to happen and my wife saying it's okay.
1: That's great. And for those who haven't read the book, they won't know that your wife kept your relationship very private for a long time,
0: (laughs) right? In fact, yeah, she, you know, she, uh, had me, use a pseudonym uh for the character that's named after my wife and um you know she's a very private person and one of the things that delights me about this book coming out is that apparently one of the top searches associated with my name on search engines is adam stern wife like there are people out there trying to figure out who this woman is um and i I adore that
1: that's funny that's great so i just want to reflect back on something you said because i think there's there's a lot in there and i and it affirms for me by the way that every book every book truly has a story its own story you know of how it came to be and uh, in this one, one of the things that i'm just kind of dialing in on is that you were saying with the i love first of all that you reached out to an agent before this and never really got a response but then you took action by writing and publishing by sharing these essays and one of those eventually it was like a line in the water that did get the it did get the result you had wanted, but didn't uh, achieve until you took action, which is cool. So right. then, an agent reaches out to you, and then together, as you're collaborating on what is this thing that we could write, and you're doing the messy, difficult work of creative, you know, brainstorming and problem solving and so forth. Of going, well, maybe it's these essays. No, that's not quite strong enough. But what do we need it to be? And when you said uh, original, uh, something in which you were an authority, and something. Something that was honest and saleable, like something, and that kind of comes back to original. That this transition from a psychi- an MD to a psychiatrist, nobody had really written. And then I love even your handle, like that shorthand of, like, well, there'll be
0: kind of a Grey's Anatomy version of that. So, anyway, thank you. I, I had to, I had to think because I, 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 like I said earlier when we were chatting, I, I think that. I wanted the book to be accessible, you know. I wanted it to be. There might be someone, something in there for anyone to to latch onto and really enjoy. And so, I think this book had those elements, you know. Um, It it has. I, I hope it really has sort of like an interpersonal drama, if that is what you enjoy reading, and it has the the guts of, you know, the how do you turn someone into a psychiatrist? Yeah,
1: yeah. I think it does. I think you hit that mark, and at the same time. You know, my experience is even once we've made a decision or we've settled on something, it's easy to waffle. It's easy to doubt. And so from here where you had that clarity and in retrospect, it all sounds so clean and simple, right? But how did you, once you arrived at those or once you made those decisions or arrived at that clarity, how did you then as a matter of course, get the book done? How did, obviously you're very busy with family and working as a doctor and this kind of thing. How did you arrange your schedule? What habits and routines did you use? How did you go from that idea to the published book?
0: Yeah, I don't know how it might've happened under normal times, but just as it happened, uh, by the time the sort of the deal to write the book was done, um, I had uh, basically, it was really um, maybe a month and a half until the pandemic hit and we were sort of locked down. And then we had set up uh, in, in, in one of the bedrooms, like a makeshift office for like, so we could be working from home in various capacities. And so I would find myself at home, you know, in those days, this is like March, 2020, I guess uh, we were suddenly at home, like all the time, you know, uh, as, as many people in, in society were. And so I had to carve out, I had to do this. If I didn't do this, it wouldn't have Gotten done. I had to say, I'm going to write something every day, at least half an hour. I'm going to shoot for like 500 or a thousand words. And I don't care if I write much more than that. That's wonderful. If I write less than that, I'm going to get back on the horse tomorrow and try to do better. And it doesn't matter if the writing is any good. I just need to write. And if I got myself to sit down and keep up the momentum, the writing seemed to get better and better. And if I Lapsed and I didn't write for a little while, which happened a few times, I would have to sort of rebuild my uh, momentum again. And one of the interesting things that I have found, and I heard this feedback from editors, and then I see it myself, is that the book gets, to me, I think the book gets better and better as it goes along. Um, You know, so if, (laughs) if someone's on the fence about reading the book, I always have to say, just get past page 80. You know, it really (laughs) picks up at page 80. Uh, And nobody else really uh, identifies with that as a marker. But to me, it's like, once you know this, the background and the people involved, then the story gets more and more interesting. Um, And so I think that's a function in part of how I got into a groove of writing because I was doing it every day. It took me maybe a month to to really get into that groove. Yeah.
1: Momentum is a real thing and inertia is real. Yep. What tools and technology were useful to you or maybe even indispensable in uh, getting this book written?
0: Yeah. Well, one of the things that was important to me was to be able to reach out to all of my former colleagues. You know, at this point, years later, they're all scattered around the country. Um, mm-hmm. And so the idea of literally being able to uh, be in touch with them is something like if, if I tried to write the book 20 years, maybe not 20 years ago, 30 years ago, uh, like I'd have to write pen and paper letters and track down these people. I wouldn't, you know, so I give a lot of grief to the social media out there that it's probably doing more harm than good for us. Uh, but, I'm, um, uh, you know, as in, in, in it, as anyone else. But um, being able to email my, my class, my former class, and say, look, I'm doing this thing. I need you to get on board. If you want me to not include you at all, let me know. I'm happy to not include you. But everyone was very supportive. They came back to me with all these anecdotes, all these stories from our time together. And you know, I wrote the book from my own perspective, but it, it includes a lot of content from friends from that era of my life and you know that's something that i couldn't have done without i think it would be a very a much inferior book without that ability to stay in touch with people from 10 years ago you know that that live all around the country and the world um so that's i mean that's a not a, the most uh, cutting edge technology email but you know it's an important thing i would say yeah absolutely how did you collaborate with your editor i know some people
1: will pass drafts back and forth some people will just redline you know, working through something like Dropbox or Google Drive, other people will actually go in and collaborate in real time. Like what was that relationship like?
0: Yeah. So um I worked with a couple different editors. Actually, if you include, you know, copy editing and then proofreading. And you know, I actually probably this went through, I don't know, five different people at various stages in terms of getting to redline and edit and mark things, but The primary content editors uh, was the initial editor who made the purchase for HMH Books was Deb Brody. And one of the most frightening moments of this experience for me, the first time I was working to write a book for a, a publishing house was when I sent the first 20,000 words over, you know, for context, the whole book is about 70,000. And I think she advised me to send it over when I'd written a, a chunk of it. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do it after 20,000 words. And there's a possibility that I, as I hit send, that she's going to reply. She's a very reputable person in the field. And if she replies and says, this isn't what I thought I was purchasing, you know, this isn't what I thought we were doing. I'm sunk, you know, like, I don't know how I recover from that, from a writing perspective. If she says, you got to start from square one again, I don't know if I have the energy for that. I poured my heart and soul into these 20,000 words. So there was a moment there where I was terrified, but she actually came back that she really thought we're on the right track and uh she had very useful feedback about not giving certain things away early to the reader um one of the biggest challenges for me as a new memoir writer was to figure out how do i tell this story with the proper arc uh, from real life i have to create these arcs that the reader appreciates the most how do i optimize the reader's appreciation for what happened to us or with us you know and so that ability to help carve that narrative was really helpful from her. And then a transition to my next editor was Karen Mergolo, uh, who's a wonderful editor. And she and I would would uh yeah, we I would send, you know, drafts along the way, but but large sections being done. Once I knew was I was on the right track, I was much more confident. And that also helped with the writing, I think. Wow.
1: Remembering that, um, you know, the intended audience for this is those who have their own creative project, those who are either in the middle of of writing a book or it's a dream they've been harboring for a long time. What advice or encouragement would you give to somebody who's either in the position of being maybe stuck in that messy middle or they've been reluctant to begin? What would you say that would help them get their book done? What instruction or inspiration would you offer?
0: So th- this is in line with a lot of the content that we've already covered today, but, you know, like doing the project, whatever it may be, if you really truly just want to do it for its own sake, right? So writing something for someone else is usually a bad idea, but if you want to write something for yourself and someone else, that's a good idea. Uh, and then even if no one else ends up reading it, it's still something that you've put together that you can be proud of, that you uh, have done that you that you like, or that hopefully you feel was worthwhile. Um, And tied in with that is that this whole process for me has only reinforced this idea of serendipity being, you know, this major aspect of how things happen that's out of our control. I can't tell you how many moments there were where it was a binary, either the editor made a bid or they didn't make a bid, either the agent reached out to me or they didn't reach out to me, either uh, she thought it was a good premise for a book or she didn't. where it could have gone in any direction. And this book was incredibly close to never happening, you know, and when it came out, it either could have been well-received or not well-received, uh, or anywhere in between. But, you know, um, I'll give you one example is uh in my head, I was like, oh man, if only maybe the book could be like reviewed by like a major newspaper, like the times would be amazing. If the New York, I grew up you know, and I still read the New York times a lot. I've written in the New York times. I said, that would be so great if they reviewed it. They never reviewed it, but people magazine made it their book of the week. And I was like, that's something I never imagined. I never thought like, Oh, if only people magazine would highlight the book. I didn't even know people magazine highlighted books, but when they highlighted it, it opened up this entire world, uh, for people to discover it, you know? So again, something I never would have predicted to happen that serendipitously happened and if i had shut myself off to that experience or not taken the chances that i took uh or even uh felt like oh if if it doesn't succeed commercially i'll feel like a failure if i took that attitude none of it would have happened so again getting back to this idea do the thing because you want to do it. And then everything else that happens to you and the book and the process, uh, it's all gravy. You know, it's all something that you can take uh, the positive from and not be disappointed in, in it not living up to some idea that you had.
1: I love that. I love that so much. And uh, I, I, I may maybe putting something in your words that you didn't say, but you talk about serendipity. And what I'm hearing possibly is Grace. Like how awesome that is that all those things, you take this action, you do it because you want to do it and something remarkable
0: happens. (laughs) Absolutely. I try to live my whole life like that. I mean, really honest to goodness, like that's what I try. Uh, I don't always succeed. I really don't. But if I just, you know, have shrunk down the world to a smaller, more manageable, uh, alignment of like what I want to be doing with my time and then good things happen from there. And my perception of those good things are are less tainted by things like disappointment or envy. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, cool. Well,
1: well, Adam, this has been a pleasure for me. I'm really grateful that you accepted the invitation to come on the show. I'm very grateful that you wrote the book uh, for the conversation that we've had. I hope that people listening have enjoyed it. And benefit from it. I suspect they will very much. What uh, final thought, final words would you like to end with?
0: First of all, thank you, Brilliant, for having me. And thank you all for listening. And my final piece of advice is I see you and also go out and do it. You know, whatever the thing is that you want to do today, tomorrow, next year, 10 years from now, take the chance. Do it if you want to. Awesome. Okay. Again,
1: my guest, Adam Stern, author of Committed Dispatches from a Psychiatrist in Training. Hey, thanks so much for listening to this episode of the School for Good Living podcast. Before you take off, I just want to extend an invitation to you. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life still isn't working for many people. Whether it's here in the developed world where we deal with depression, anxiety, loneliness, addiction, divorce, unfulfilling jobs or relationships that don't work, or in the developing world where so many people still don't have access to basic things like clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or they live in conflict zones, there are a lot of people on this planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, or even if your life is working, but you have the sense that it could work better. Consider signing up for the School for Good Living's Transformational Coaching Program. It's something I've designed to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated, or you've gone through a divorce, or you've gotten married, headed into retirement, starting a business, been married for a long time, whatever. No matter where you are in life, this nine-month program will give you the opportunity to go deep, in every area of your life to explore life's big questions, to create answers for yourself in a community of other growth-minded individuals. And it can help you get clarity and be accountable to realize more of your unrealized potential. It can also help you find and maintain motivation. In short, it's designed to help you live with greater health, happiness, and meaning so that you can be, do, have, and give more. Visit goodliving.com to learn more or to sign up today.